my children, welcome to part two of my conversation with Michael DeWadley on Breakfast at Tiffany's. So this part of the conversation, we really uh, dive into um, parts that I have not a topic of conversation in this film that I really haven't gotten into before. Um, some deeper dives on how Holly lightly perceives race, um, diving into sexism, uh, heteronormativity, uh, and how that plays out in the film, um, race in terms of representation uh, in a different way. Uh, that I have been able to before. It just goes into a lot of nooks and crannies and corners and kind of sweeps out what's under the rug for discussion in really interesting ways. So I'm glad you're here. Um, And let's get right into the conversation. Uh, Pull up a seat, pull out your popcorn, and get ready for this convo. I'll catch you on the other end. Bye for now. Now, wait a minute, global icon and star. I mean, she became a, not only was she a movie star, but she became a UNICEF, like, ambassador. Like, she was, before she died, she was such a huge humanitarian. I mean, the AIDS crisis, children in Uganda, like, Africa. I mean, she was, Audrey Hepburn became um, one of the first celebrities to really put her bully pulpit behind um, really advocating for poor people of color abroad. Not so much in America, but she was always advocating for Africa and um, anti-poverty initiatives and like social justice. Um, wow. So, yeah, I mean, you know, My Fair Lady. I mean, no, I've never seen uh, it. You've never seen My Fair Lady? No, I hear it's good though. <laughs> yeah, you should check it out. It, it, it's uh, it's okay. <laughs> I think I maybe heard part of the soundtrack, and it's. I don't know. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, I. It's interesting because I've been reading a book called um, uh, "The Gene and Intimate History," and they make a reference mm-hmm. to Audrey Hepburn, kind of in the middle of it, because she was a child of the Hunger Winter. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I don't mm-hmm. know if you do. You, are you familiar with that? Yes. Okay, great. So it was talking about how she inherited certain genes like as a result of the hunger winter, which led her to have a bunch of health problems later on in her life, which I just like mm-hmm. blew my mind, like the way that, that we inherit trauma, I guess. I am I am eating right now, audience, because I just went for a three mile run. Um, so I'm eating banana chips. And so you'll hear crunching and that's just how that's gonna be. <laughs> um, yeah, um, so, so I guess, so when when you when it opened up and you and you saw what was your first impression of like the music, this yeah. opening scene? You know, honestly, my first was... impression of the opening scene was I have I you know I've never lived in New York. You have, and this is obviously New York in the '60s and not New York in the 21st century. But I mm-hmm. it opened up on that scene, and I was like, I have never been in New York and seen the streets be so empty. Like, how is she mm-hmm. getting out of this taxi cab and there's nobody? bustling around her like it's just her in front of this window and the sun is up and like shouldn't there at least be a pizza rat like dragging a cardboard box somewhere down the street like how is it this elegant and so it kind of colored my whole impression of the film because I was like this doesn't feel like real real New York to me or whatever it feels like somebody's idealized version of what New York maybe could be or, mm. or glamorous enough so in that way it kind of like just 
not turned me off per se, but it was like, okay, well, this is the perspective that you're going to get. Mm. Well, I think that's a, sort of an interesting idea um, because the world that Holly Golightly has curated for herself is this sort of uh, inflated, it, it is sort of a dream of New York, right? She's she floats from party to party. She floats from, you know, her fellow models slash call girls to dinners out where some man pays for her her and five of her friends to $50 for the powder room to, they don't show it, but she has a, a closet full of amazing clothes. So she's somehow getting all of these amazing clothes. She's obviously going to other parties. She's courting men all over the place. Her life is, is, is she's living the glamorous life on a shoestring budget. Uh, what champagne, champagne dreams on a, on a, on a beer budget. Oh yeah. 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 Um, and she, she's making it work for herself to a point. Um, and that's kind of, I was going to say that's kind of not real, but uh, as I discovered in another conversation, I don't know, artists in New York, you do kind of, you make do with nothing and you make, you know, you, you go to thrift stores and you, you make these costumes and you make these fabulous clothes, like the costume designer, Patricia Field, who designs Sex in the City, and, you know, and she would, she would go through um, uh, thrift stores and for the first season and she would get like, you know, um, a Dolce & Gabbana belt from five seasons ago and pair it with pants from Goodwill and a shirt from Old Navy. And that's why Carrie Bradshaw's look was so eclectic. She would have on Adidas with, um, with a Calvin Klein jean and then a Kmart shirt. And you kind of do that as an artist new in New York to look chic. And it's because all you could afford. So there's a hustle involved mm. that she's kind of she kind of exemplifies the hustle I feel in a way um, I don't know but yeah yeah the streets do look I, I don't know I've read something somewhere about how they had to, it took them a long time to get that shot because apparently the audience is like right there were people and they were all like clamoring to see Audrey Hepburn but they're I mean they just shot it really well so they like corralled the people like they do now in New York where they put up the, you know, the stanchions, the horses. Oh, yeah. The yeah. saw horses. So they're like people on the other side of the street, like looking, but they shot at a certain time so they could get it pretty clear. Um, yeah, it does seem like an antiseptic New York. It's definitely a New York that is gone, right? Mm-hmm. And in maybe good riddance, I don't know, but it's definitely like a different version of New York than I'm used to seeing as someone who's really only seen movies from after 1977. <laughs> well if anything i hope i hope this is encouragement to check out films yeah, yeah. before star wars <laughs> <laughs> absolutely um um so so you have we have the opening shot and then she she goes into i mean it, i don't know how you want to go about this but i'm fine with going through it scene by scene <laughs> <laughs> oh geez i should have watched it more than just once i think well, then we'll just get, well, then we can just go through. Yeah, I'm, your, I'm your trying to remember. I remember their meeting and I was like, who is this very aggressive man who just is in her apartment now, even though they don't seem to have known each other at all? Oh, right. The guy from last night. 
Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's who's waiting for her in a car. So she is living very precariously though, right? Like men are waiting for her in cars. Mm -hmm. They're she's having to climb out windows because the tricks she's picking up are highly aggressive and are breaking down doors. I mean, she is routinely getting these men who are violent yes. and drink too much and get so scary she has to climb out the window of her own apartment to get away from them. Yeah. And that's something that the movie kind of, I feel like, glosses over. But, like, clearly she felt in danger for her life. Maybe a sexual assault was going to occur that she had to jump out the fucking window. That's that's rough. You know, it, it is rough, but there's something about, you know, Audrey Hepburn's portrayal of this character or maybe the style of the film that makes it feel always kind of light or haphazard or, like you know, maybe I'll get beat up, but probably not because I'm clever and bouncy and can hop out of this window really quickly. I think that's why I was so surprised when I like tried to look it up and see if the movie had been rated at any point and it was like G rated for TV. And I don't know if they like kept all of the scenes in or not to get that rating, but it was just kind of an interesting mm -hmm. idea that you could do a version of the film that is rated G um, at all that, that still makes sense, you know, because so much of it is yeah. based around very adult storylines and themes. I think that's one of, well, well, it was famously, uh, Truman Capote was very upset. He wanted Marilyn Monroe cast as Holly Golightly. He was very angry and he had already sold the property, um, that his novella was sold and, uh, they cast Audrey Hepburn, not because she didn't think she could act, but because she always brings this light, buoyant quality that he knew that was going to happen. And he wanted it to be this darker. The novella is darker and grittier. I, I confess I have not read it in a long time, but I do remember the Holly Golightly in the novella is a very sharper edged sword than Audrey Hepburn. Mm -hmm. Although I think I don't know, please correct me on this. So I'd love to know how you feel about this. To me, Audrey Hepburn, the brilliant of her, of her acting, the brilliance is that it seems like she's coping. Like, it's not that she's an idiot or that she's just blithely going along. It's like, no, I know I'm about to be raped. I'm going to jump out the window, but I always make the best out of everything. And I'm just going to stay positive and keep it moving. And that's how you get through. Well, that is kind of how you get through New York because stuff keeps happening to you in New York and you're like, okay, my rent's due. Okay, I don't have enough money. Okay, how am I going to do this? Okay, now the power's been shut off. Okay, I didn't get that audition. Okay, like things start to snowball very quickly in the city. Right. And you have to stay positive. You have to stay up and you just go out drinking with your friends and you're like, you know what? I don't know how I'm going to pay rent in seven days, but I'm going to go out and have fun with my friends. And we're going to laugh and have a kiki tonight and I'll figure that out tomorrow. And somehow you figure it out. And I feel like that's, that's in Audrey Hepburn's portrayal. I, 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 just, I feel like there's a, there's always a current underneath of, I know what's going on, but this is how I deal with it. Let me ask you a question, Billy, that may sound like a little, a little obvious or maybe stupid at first, but who do you think the the narrative is centered around? Oh, I mean, I've, I've people have debated this a lot. Is it Paul's story or Holly Lightly's story? Yeah. So from, from my memory, and once again, I read the novella when I was in the ninth grade. From my memory, it is Paul 
telling the story of this girl that he met. Mm, mm -hmm. But from what I can recall, the, the the film does a good job as the of adapting the novella because her story is so interesting. He kind of recedes, and it becomes all about Holly. Um, so yes, it is Paul's story, but Holly Golightly quickly takes over it, and that it becomes her story because Paul's boring. He's a boring individual. Yeah. <laughs> like, so you're, you're attracted to her story because he's a kept man. And even though they're the same person, really, she's just more wild and exciting. Um, they're both sex workers and he just doesn't realize it, I don't think. I don't think he realizes that he's a gigolo. No, no. Do you? Well, I, I don't think he realizes it. I also don't think that for most men that is a an, an occupation that they imagine existing. Um, mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, th I think every day he gets up and he's like, no, I'm a writer and I'm kind of in between gigs. So the woman I'm dating who's married is just helping me out. But I'm not a gigolo. Right, right, right. <laughs> because I'm, I'm the man and I'm in control and I get in this relationship whenever I want. And it's complicated. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think the idea of it being like his story, A, doesn't like as someone who's never seen this movie, but has heard people talk about this movie. Um, it was interesting to watch it and feel like he, as a character, is never mentioned. Like in my in my mind, when I hear people talk about this movie, they talk about Audrey Hepburn. the The posters mm -hmm. are of this elegant, beautiful woman. The song yeah. is the song that she sings. Like nowhere right. is it really like him involved in this story at all. He's a device, simply. That's it. Yeah, he's just a framing device. Yeah. Yeah. And in simultaneously, what's interesting to me about it is that if he is the center of the narrative, then the movie to me is like, m maybe it's original, but it feels very much like a manic pixie dream girl movie, you know? Oh, this is the, pro I mean, this is, yeah. I mean, this is definitely the, the, the precursor to that being a trope. Like this is the, I feel like this is the introduction of that trope. It might actually be the film, the film introduction of that trope. Um, Except that she, unlike the like the traditional magic pixie dream girl, never falls. I mean, Holly Golightly certainly, when Fred dies, when Fred is killed, and I mean, she has her bottoms, like her rock bottoms, right? When she tears the shit out of her room and is having like a breakdown, and um, then she goes to jail. Like the magic stops, right? Like the magic, the slipper, the glass slipper doesn't fit. It breaks. It shatters. She can't click her heels three times. Everything just starts to collapse very quickly on her um, in succession. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess like if, if the story is told from his perspective, it definitely feels like that kind of movie. If the story is told mm -hmm. from her perspective and the story is about her transformation, um, mm -hmm. I think it's a more interesting movie to me if you look at it that way. Yeah. And I, I, I think, I guess the way, the way it is framed, you have to keep... You have to, I feel like it's it's just framed in a way that you have to think of it as her story because you also learn nothing about Paul. I mean, the only thing you know about Paul is he is a writer yep. who was kept who was kept by a woman. You learn nothing about his family, where he's from, uh, you know, what got him into writing. I mean, you know nothing, you know nothing about it. You learn nothing about him. All you know is he writes, he wrote a book five years ago or however many years ago, and he's kept by a woman. And he just came back from Rome. That's it. Yep. 
So if it's his story, we don't learn anything more about him. <laughs> exactly. That's, right. That's yeah. all. His his arc is is non-existent. It's kind of like yeah. he, he's in a committed relationship with one woman, albeit it's not healthy. But he ends the movie in a committed <laughs> relationship with another woman. I don't know. There's not a lot of transformation there. Right, and he go he goes from being taken care of to feeling like he can take care of somebody else. That's his arc, I guess. Yeah, although his idea of what it means to love somebody else is super problematic. It's disgusting! (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You belong to me! Mm. Oh my god, he, like, literally says that. I know, it's like these cringeworthy lines in this movie, and I'm like, is this a romantic comedy where I'm supposed to be on board with that idea, with that concept of love, (laughs) you know? And I'm like, oh, what a, he really feels it. I don't know. Oh, that moment, uh, I, 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 I had never had felt so viscerally. So the last time before, the previous time I watched this film, that library scene had never bothered me so much before where he's constantly grabbing her over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's clear she wants to leave, I wanted to reach through the scream and punch him. Like, it bothered me so much when before I just thought, oh, he's so passionate and he really loves her and why can't she wake up and see how much he loves her? No, he's like physically attacking her. Right. What is the difference between him and the guys that she like jumps out the bathroom window to escape? Right? Yeah. Well, what? Because he's pretty and young. So we're supposed to not, he's blonde and blue eyed. So we're not supposed to care that he's grabbing her, like right. assaulting her in the library. Right. And also nobody comes to help. Nobody this woman is clearly being attacked in the library. Yeah, the, the precursor to that scene is actually what bothered me most. And maybe it's because I'm watching it with the 2020 lens. But when he grabs the mm. person that he thinks is Holly from behind and she's like, Oh, that woman in front of the cops. I know. I I was so like, I'm very uncomfortable watching that scene because the cop is just like throwing his his nightstick up and down like it's a yo-yo or like he's like trying to figure out the right way to make it look cool to throw it like he looks like a cartoon character i love that he's playing with a phallic symbol like having fun with himself that's meta away from this woman who's just been violently accosted by a stranger but who seems to be almost immediately okay with it like she's fine because he's attractive once again oh he's cute so that's okay yes She immediately, what are you doing? Oh, mm. I'm like, oh my god, that's disgusting, Blake Edwards. Gross. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a terrible choice. Yeah, uh, it's supposed to be a joke. We're supposed to laugh at that scene. Really? I mean, I I think it looks like it's played for humor. Yeah. Like, oh, it's a mistake. Oh, it's all right. Oh, that Paul. <laughs> yeah, the, the scene, the the movie sense of humor sometimes was like really not. Not there for me, and maybe it's... oh, so you don't like you don't like yellow face. You're not into. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's <right. laughs> oh, Mickey Rooney. Oh God. Oh. I mean, you can't talk about this movie without talking about that. But I don't know that I have anything new to say other than, dear God, why, why, why? And as I've as I've addressed before, but it it it, it bears repeating that we're, we weren't that far from the internment camps, folks. No, it was only like fifteen, sixteen years, and you know we'll never get over nine eleven. So to to just say that oh we should have gotten over the internment camps by then, it's like uh no, um and this is insane. And then it it, it can't it can't be said enough to then have the actual Asian women in that party scene. Yeah. 
it's like, why are you so intentional? So, so you're like driving the point home that this is a disgusting caricature. So you know what you're doing. I think Not that that would even be an excuse, but you want to point it out to us that you know what you're doing because you then include actual Asian people later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes it even worse to me. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? No, I mean, I, I definitely think it, it makes it worse. Um, I mean, I think... I think it makes it feel very much like um, the Asian people in that scene feel like like set dressing rather than people. Oh, definitely. Set- yeah, they're definitely accessories. Yeah, yeah. continuing to be, to be like, look at this apartment and how eclectic and strange it is. And it's got pieces of art <laughs> and sculptures and stuff from all over the place. And look at these people. They're also weird. And like, let's look at our fabulous, I don't know. Holly's so kooky. She has Asian women in her apartment. Look at that. Right, right. Yeah. It's night of debauchery. Yeah. Don't worry. We also have exotic people you can fetishize. Like, it's very, it, it doesn't yeah. feel like they're humans in that scene. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's that. I still, I haven't figured it out yet. I mean, I guess it's just more of the fetishization of them, as, you, as you're mentioning. That moment where Paul Varjak is talking to J.J. Berman about discovering Holly and they have the Asian woman centered right in the middle of the frame mm-hmm. in between the two white men. Yes. And I'm like, what? Why did he do? Like, what is the what is the function here other than I just want to feature this Asian woman. That, uh, just I want to super fetishize her. So she's in the middle of the shot. Like, I'm just, I don't I, I'm still trying to figure out like what the purpose there of that was. Because she gets no lines. No. no they, but she's in the center of the frame. Yeah. Uh, for a long time. For that whole scene. For that whole conversation. Her face. Well, she, it starts without her. And then she saunters in. And she's boom. Right in the middle of the shot. Yeah. For the whole conversation. I don't, I don't think that there are good comforting answers to be found in that question. <laughs> <laughs> I could be wrong. But I don't think... I don't think you know the answer to that is going to make us feel better about this movie. But then at the same time, so you have all of that, and then you have Holly after Rusty Trawler won't marry her and marries this other person because he's broke. Yep. She then goes after uh, Jose de Silva Pereira, mm-hmm. and you're thinking at least when when she made that decision, I had to say okay. Is Holly actually open to dating? Is she is she attracted to this man, or only his money, or is she just, or is it both, or is she saying I need to, I need to? Um, well, she started dating him before Fred died, so is she start? Is she saying I just I need this money so that I can get my ranch to bring Fred home so we can raise horses or whatever that the dream that she has of, of taking Fred away to um, her brother, Fred, the real Fred, um, away to a ranch to raise horses. Um, is it all of the above? I'm still trying to figure out, was it just, oh, he's the next richest man I can find? Or is it she is open to, and not just open to, but attracted to this person of color? Because um, that would say something different about anime. Mm. Uh but I don't know. 
I don't even know if, I don't know. It's just it's something I'm trying to figure out. Of course, we don't know the answer to it, but I'm just, I'm just ruminate over, huh, is that just because Rusty Trollo didn't work out or is she actually like, oh, he's gorgeous. He's also rich and I actually like him. And does that even matter? I don't know. She does at least refer to him as being handsome at least a couple of times. So, I mean, she definitely was trying to marry him for his money and, and power and access and all those things. But I yeah. think on some level, she found him attractive also. Like, I think she's an equal well, opportunity exploiter of... <laughs> yeah, I think she I think she sees men as, as you know, as what they are, pawns. Yeah. And she's like, I will just use them all for my, you know, enjoyment right right i mean i will say i think they do set up that he's just supposed to be so gorgeous because paul even says that oh yeah he makes a comment oh he's all right if you like gorgeous men with too many teeth yeah you know so even he's even he says oh yeah clearly he's attractive he's handsome which i thought was kind of progressive for 1961 yeah for another man to be able to say that on screen because i mean there's still I still see sitcoms today where men are like, oh, I can't tell you if that guy's attractive. I'm not gay. <laughs> I'm like, in 2020, sitcoms are still making that joke. So for him to say that in 1961, I thought was kind of progressive. Yeah, yeah. I think you're absolutely right about that. At the, in the same room that they're, you know, fetishizing Asian women, they're progressive in him recognizing another man as attractive. Yeah, I mean, I guess as long as you can, like, maybe pass for white if you squint, or I don't know, like, it, you know. He... Right, he could be a, a white Hispanic, so there you go. <laughs> right. right, close enough. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? I really was interested in... um how we got into talking about the race of um, De Silva Pereira and how Holly perceives race. Um, that's something that I haven't really fallen into speaking about yet. And so I'm, I'm loving these conversations with people because it doesn't matter how many times I see the film, different things come up. And that's a sign of good art that is rich and deep enough for you to be able to mine new conversations upon every viewing, right? So these conversations feed me. I would not forgive myself if I did not mention that we have yet another sister fallen, uh, murdered by hate, Brayla Stone. She was a 17-year-old child who was shot to death in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. Her body was found. Details are still coming out uh, about her killers, but she is a black trans girl. Not even going to say woman because she was a teenager, 17. If the word teen is in your name, you're a child. So I'm not going to call her a trans woman. She was a black trans teen uh, murdered by hate and racism and transphobia. It has to stop. I'm so tired of naming these people. I'm so tired of naming my people. Black lives matter. Trans lives matter. Stop killing us. The Great Flood is spoken.